Hey, I'm Michael Wood, lead pastor at First West. Thank you so much for joining us today. Here in just a second, we're gonna dive into God's word and to see what it says about who he is, about who we are, and about the hope that can be found in the gospel of Jesus Christ. I pray that today God's word will encourage you, it'll challenge you, and it'll allow you to see that no matter where we find ourselves, there's always hope because of Jesus Christ. So let's dig in and see what God has for us today in his word. Hey, take your Bible, go with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Uh, we've, we've titled chapter 7, Real Life Relationships, because Paul is dealing with relationships, and he's dealing with them in the context of real life. But life is not always easy. It's difficult. There's challenges that come along the way. And so Paul is helping us to navigate uh, these, these relationships and how do we do it. And, and the way that Paul is doing it is I want you to imagine with me for a moment this, this walking into these situations with a gospel lens. All right, a gospel lens. Now, when I say gospel, remember, I'm talking about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus and the good news that there can be salvation. That means to be saved from our sin, which separates us from God. But God, in his love for you, sent Jesus to pay the penalty for that sin and so that you can be forgiven and reconciled to God. That is the good news of the gospel. All right. So when we come to faith in Christ, everything changes. Now, it doesn't mean that life just all of a sudden becomes easy and we don't have any troubles in our life anymore, but everything changes. Our eternal destination changes. We, we know that the Bible says that when we move from spiritual death to spiritual life, that now we live with the hope of heaven one day, the promise of spending eternity with, uh, with him in heaven. But at the same time, not only does our eternal destination change, but our current situation. What that means is not necessarily the situation in and of itself, but, but how we walk through the situations of life. Because now there is a, a lens through which we view our lives. And it is a lens that puts God in his word as the priority. Many years ago, many of you in here wore a band that said WWJD on it, right? What would Jesus do? It was that idea of thinking through that lens of how do I navigate this relationship? How do I navigate my finances? How do I navigate my work? How do I, all these things, I'm now navigating them by looking through the lens of what is right in the eyes of God. What brings honor and glory and pleasure to God? And in knowing that when I am living in that way, I will feel no greater joy, no greater sense of purpose in my life. So now as Paul is dealing with these relationship issues in Corinth, he's trying to help those in Corinth and us today to think through them with this gospel lens of how does the gospel, how does the reality of who I am in Christ, how does it help me navigate these situations to a way that it, of most importance glorifies God, but also of importance is for my good. And so we began last week by talking about physical intimacy and the relationship and God's plan and the gift that that is and, and the mutuality that we find in the marriage relationship of husband and wife. And today we're going to take on two of the three breakdowns that he's going to give us through chapter 7. All right? So let's stand to honor the reading of God's word. We're going to begin in verse 8 and read through verse 16. The word of the Lord says, starting in verse 8, I say to the unmarried and to the widows, it is good for them if they will remain as I am. But if they do not have self-control, they should marry, since it is better to marry than to burn with desire. 
To the married, I give this command. Not I, but the Lord, a wife is not to leave her husband. But if she does leave, she should remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband. And a husband is not to divorce his wife. But I, not the Lord, say to the rest. If any brother has an unbelieving wife and she is willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. Also, if any woman has an unbelieving husband and he is willing to live with her, she must not divorce her husband. For the unbelieving husband is made holy by the wife and the unbelieving wife is made holy by the husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. But as it, are, as it is, they are holy. But if the unbeliever leaves, let him leave. A brother or sister is not bound in such cases. God has called you to live in peace. Wife, for all that you know, you might save your husband. Husband, for all that you know, you might save your wife. Let's pray together. Father, we give you this time. We acknowledge that you are the Lord over all things. And by you, all things are all things, were all things will be. And Father, we submit our hearts, we submit our will, our mind, all that we are under your authority and the teaching of your word. God, would you guide our thoughts? Would you guide our hearts today as we submit ourselves to your word? Spirit of God, would you be at work in this moment? In Jesus' name, amen. Now there's a lot there. And you're thinking, goodness gracious, I feel more confused than when we started. And it can be a little confusing. But today, as we dive into this, here's simply what I want you to walk away with, is that how we approach marriage is a gospel decision. How we approach marriage is a gospel decision. It means there is that lens through which we should view the institution of marriage, and for some of us, specifically in our lives, what it looks like to the married and to the unmarried. So let's begin to go to work here. The first thing we see in verse 8 and 9, and it's simply this, that remaining unmarried can be a gospel decision. Remaining unmarried can be a gospel decision. You see there, he begins in verse 8. He says, I say to the unmarried and to the widows. All right? Now, let me give you a little current situation that is informing Paul's writing here in, in chapter 7. There's two things that we see that I think are informing the, the, the tone, the tenor of what Paul is writing. And I even think potentially some of the advice that he's giving as he's speaking into these issues. Number one is to understand that in Corinth at the moment as he's writing is, there is persecution that is taking place. It's not easy. There's challenges that they are facing. And in fact, we see that later on in chapter 7 where he's going to say, speaking of this present distress... So a recognition that things are not all rainbows and butterflies and unicorns in Corinth. There are struggles that they're experiencing as believers because of their faith. The second thing is to understand that for Paul, there is a unique sense of urgency. In fact, in verse 29, he is going to say that the time is limited. Some believe that Paul understands that there is more persecution that is coming. I would fall in the camp that says Paul is writing with an urgency of believing, hear me, that Jesus is going to return within Paul's lifetime. Paul believes that the judgment seat of Christ and Christ returning and restoring all things to himself, that it is absolutely imminent, like it is coming. And with those two realities of the persecution that they're facing and Paul writing with this extreme urgency, I think it has an influence on some of what he is saying here. But he says here, to the unmarried and to the widows. 
If you look at verse 10, you're going to see that he's going to address the married, and we're going to cover that today. And then verse 25, he's going to say to the virgins, and we're going to discuss that next week, all right? But you can see that he is he's sectioning off and specifically who it is that he is writing to. But in this first one, in verse 8, he says, to the unmarried and the widows. Paul's organizing his thoughts. And some believe here that when Paul says unmarried, he's actually speaking to widowers. Part of this comes from the mutuality that we saw last week and that we see really through the entire chapter. Some believe because of the word usage that he uses there that Paul is specifically speaking to those who were once married, but their spouse has died and now they find themselves single again. Others would say that Paul is simply just speaking to those who were once married that are now single, right? And look at the, the command that he gives them or what he says to them. He says there in verse 8, it is good for them if they remain as I am. Again, we talked about this last week in the word good here. This is not from a moral sense of it is good, but the other option is evil. This is more of a preference. Paul is saying, it, I think from a preference standpoint, I think it is better for this than the other option. And he says there, it is good for them to remain. Say the word remain. Good. If, you're, if you write in your Bible, you can circle that word remain because that is an important word that we're going to see, a theme that we're going to see through the rest of this chapter. It's the idea to stay as you are, to remain. And some people, I leaked this last week, for some of you, your gears have been turning. Some believe that this moment right here is a, a hint to us that Paul, at some point in his past, was married. Now, for decades and decades and decades, I've just always assumed that Paul was always single. Many of you probably feel that same way. And to be honest with you, the Bible is not definitive on what his past exactly was in this area of his life. But some believe that if he is speaking to widowers and widows, and then he says, I, I, I would hope that you would remain as I am, he's referring to the fact that his wife had passed away. Now, there is some other evidence there of believing, as we see in the book of Acts, as, as Paul is growing in, in his Jewish faith before he becomes a believer, even in referencing of going along with those of the Sanhedrin, that if Paul would have been a member of the Sanhedrin, which was likely that that would have happened, it would have been required for him to be married. All right? Now, that really does nothing to change your life, and I'm fully aware of that. All right? But I think it's fascinating but for me, just something of saying, man, I've always thought this way, but it could be this way. But regardless, what Paul is saying here is this. Listen, if you can remain as I am, if you can remain unmarried, Paul says, I think that's preferable. But look at what he says here in verse 9. But, there's a caveat. But if they do not have self-control, they should marry, since it is better to marry than to burn with desire. Paul says, listen, in my preference, I would say that if you're a widower, if you're a widow, to, to continue to live in, in, in that setting in which God has you, to stay the course in where God has you. But at the same time, if you don't feel like you can have self-control, that's a word that Paul's going to use in other places, speaking to exercise and discipline. If you can't discipline yourself, then you should marry. And he says there, since it is better to marry than to burn with desire. And this goes back to what he was saying last week. Remember last week in verse 2 when he says, listen, because of sexual immorality, you should marry. 
Paul's well aware of the temptation that comes for people from a physical standpoint. And he's saying, listen, I, I think it's good if you can continue to live your life being single. But listen, if you can't have self-control in this area, if you can't remain pure in your walk with God in this area of your life, he says, it is better to marry than to burn with desire. Now, in your translation, and actually in the original translation, it doesn't use that phrase at the end, with desire. It simply says, it is better than you should burn. Some people believe that, that Paul is writing here about the, the judgment that is to come. Saying that you're not in Christ, those are not in Christ, that they will burn, the judgment that will come. I think in the immediate context, the understanding to burn with passion or burn with desire is correct. And so, what, what does he mean? What, what is Paul saying here in verse 89? Simply this. That if you can choose to remain unmarried for the sake of the kingdom, and you can do it without this overwhelming temptation that you can stand against in purity, then Paul thinks it's good. But if you can't, Paul says don't. It's real simple. He's saying you have to do that personal evaluation for yourself. If you're in this season of life and you can remain pure and have self-control in your life in this area, then Paul says great. But if not, he says it's better to marry. And here's, if I'm going I'm to chase a little rabbit for us here because this is another place that illustrates in the Bible the contrast of doing versus being. Doing versus being. So often in our lives, it's easy for us to focus on the doing because the doing is measurable. And oftentimes in our Christian life and our walk, it's easy to evaluate how things are going based on our doing. But oftentimes what we find in Scripture is that the Word likes to focus on our being and who we're becoming. And so what Paul is saying in a sense here, that if you're doing by that choosing to remain single is going to harm your being of remaining pure before God, don't do it. Don't do it. And that's true in every facet of our life. It can be easy for us as believers to fill our lives with things that we are doing for the Lord. And we get so busy doing these things, what happens is our focus goes away from who we're being and becoming into what we're doing. And we begin to measure our relationship with the Lord based on what we're doing. Some of you, you've had to experience this maybe in friendships. Friendships where you have that friend and they're always worried about what they're doing, what they're doing, what they're doing. And you're like, I just want to sit and have a heart connection with you. And you're like the Tasmanian devil going nuts, right? And so in a sense, what Paul is saying, you're saying, listen to the unmarried. Listen, if you can do this and it's not going to affect your being and who you are in Christ and who he longs for you to be and being pure before him, then go for it. But if not then get married. And now we see the understanding that remaining unmarried, it can be a gospel decision. A decision that you make that for the sake of the kingdom, I'm going to decide to remain unmarried. Now, I'm not going to go into the why that's the case. We're going to cover that next week, right? But simply he's saying, for those that are widowers, for widows for the unmarried, he's saying, I think it is good for you to stay unmarried. But if you can't, then don't. And now we see Paul's going to make a transition to another group. Look at me in verse 10. Those that are married. This is where we're going to do most of our work today. In verse 10 through 24, what I think we see here, and I'm going to give you some context of what he's writing, but, but simply this, that remaining married 
should be a gospel decision. So remaining unmarried can be a gospel decision, but remaining married should be a gospel decision. Now let me remind you, beginning in chapter 7, Paul is responding to questions that are being asked by the church at Corinth, or he's having to correct faulty viewpoints that the church at Corinth has. And so they've written to Paul about these, with these questions or stating their position, and now he's having to respond back. Here's the challenge. And I've told you this. We don't know what they were asking. We don't know what they were thinking. We have to use context clues to determine what the real issue is that Paul is trying to address. Now, I think from the context of what Paul is going to say here is the overriding issue that Paul is dealing with as he goes in to verse 10 through verse 24 is that what a couple should do when one of them becomes a Christian and is now married to a non-Christian. So the picture is two people that are married, husband and wife, neither of them are believers. And now all of a sudden, whether at a whatever event the church had, sitting at a friend, uh, over coffee, at work, whatever, one of them becomes a believer and now they're in a married relationship of one who is a Christian and one who is a non-Christian. And those in Corinth are wondering, what do we do? How should we handle this issue? Should I get out of this marriage because the person that's closest to me in my life is not a Christian? And understand that this would have been a very natural question for them to ask, not just because of their unsureness of what was the right thing to do, but because the culture in which they live, listen to this. Tell me if this sounds familiar. The culture in which they live saw divorce as no big deal. See, Corinth was primarily in a culture that would be described as a Greco-Roman culture. And in that Greco-Roman culture, divorce was well known. Both men and women, this is different from Judaism, but in the Greco-Roman culture, both men and women could initiate the divorce. There was no need for a divorce to be a mutual decision. Simply one person could choose to divorce the other, or the other could divorce the other. The grounds of the divorce were not important, and some would do it, listen to this, just to improve their financial uh, status. You're with this person. This person's available. They have more resources. They're going to allow me to shop more. They're going to allow me to hunt more. I'm going to say goodbye to this one because it is advantageous for me to enter into this marriage. In fact, in the Greco-Roman culture, when marriage certificates were written out, they were written using wordage that pointed to the fact there was an expectation it was going to end in divorce. How do you like that? Imagine standing there at your wedding, giving your vows to one another and be like, hey, I'll give you the best I have for, I, I, let's say, at least a decade and we'll see how it goes, right? But, but that was the divorce culture in Corinth. This Greco-Roman culture, understanding they expected the marriage to end in divorce and not death. It was said that people in Corinth, people that were under this Greco-Roman culture, they would get divorced to get remarried, and they would get remarried to get divorced. Just how they lived. The idea of committing your life of a husband and wife until death, it was so foreign to them. And so in understanding that culture, listen now to what Paul is going to say 
through a gospel lens to these people who are trying to navigate these real-life relationships and a real-life culture that puts a very, very, very low value on marriage. Look at me in verse 10. To the married, I give this command. Not I, but the Lord. A wife is not to leave her husband, but if she does leave... She must remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband, and a husband is not to divorce his wife. Now, I want you to catch the weight of what Paul is saying here in verse 10. Notice he says, I give this command. Not perspective, not idea or opinion, but it is a command. And he uses a very interesting phrase. We're going to see it several times in this chapter. But he says, not I, but the Lord. Some people may believe that, well, he's saying that this doesn't really have binding authority because it's not from the red letters of the gospel. It's just Paul speaking here. But that's not the case. What he's referencing here is he's saying, I'm not saying this. This is coming straight from the mouth of Jesus. Right? This, is coming from, this is coming from we can look and we can see where, where Christ has spoken to this. And look at what he commands here. He says, a wife is not to leave her husband, but if she does leave, she must remain unmarried to be reconciled to her husband. And then he says the reverse there, that a husband is not to divorce his wife. So to the wife, don't leave. Your translation may say separate. Our Western culture, in our Western culture, we, it's okay. In our Western culture, we may go to a uh, understanding of, oh yeah, like you're separated, right? You're, you're, you're separated. But, but that's not the idea. The idea is to leave. Oftentimes the husband would be the one who owns the house. And in that culture, he simply would tell the wife or the wife would just say, I'm leaving. I'm done with this marriage. I'm taking my things and going. The husband would be the opposite. He would oftentimes own the home. And so Paul's going to use this verbiage here to divorce, meaning for, to make the wife leave. It's the same idea that he's speaking of here. And so what we find, and Paul gives us in verse 10 and 11, is a high view of marriage. It is the right view of marriage. And as we said last week, the coming together of two people becoming one flesh. So I don't want you to miss this. This is important for us this morning. It's the understanding, the biblical understanding of marriage. It, it is not just a contract written on a piece of paper, but it is a commitment, a covenant commitment sealed upon the soul for life. For life. Hey, there's a situation over there. It's not an emergency. It's okay. We're glad you're here. All right. Amen. 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 We're glad you're here. So don't worry about that one bit, all right? Listen. So there's this covenant commitment between two people that God intends. That is God's design. That is his plan that it be kept until death. And so Paul says here, listen, you, that, that's what Jesus has said. That this is a covenant commitment for life. But then he says, listen to what he says here. That if you do divorce... You're to remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband or to the wife, to the spouse. So he's saying there's two options. And if you walk out of a marriage, he's saying there's two options that are, that are given here is to remain single, to remain unmarried, or to be reconciled. Now let me say this, except for just a few specific occasions that we're going to discuss here in a moment. The understanding there is that if you, even if you legally end your marriage by the eyes of the government, the covenant bond between the two of you is not broken. And so the command for the believer is to remain unmarried or better yet to reconcile. 
Listen, I just want you to hear that if you come to us and you're struggling in your marriage, number one, we want you to come to us if you're struggling in your marriage. We want to pray for you. We want to help you. We want to serve you however we can. But the heartbeat of myself and of our pastoral team is always going to be we want to, we want to see reconciliation come. We want to do our very best to, to, to foster reconcilia- reconciliation in your marriage. But hear me, this is very, very different than what the world tells you. But falling out of love, desiring a fresh start, irrevocable differences, those might be seen as valid reasons for divorce in the eyes of the world, but not according to God's word. And that may be hard to hear, but marriage is a commitment for life to reflect the mystery of the gospel, of Christ's loving, uh, lo- his loving and faithful relationship to the church. I've said this to you before, but I want you to hear it again. Unbiblically divorcing your spouse demonstrates to the world the complete opposite regarding Christ's love for the church. Your faithfulness in your marriage loudly communicates God's loving, gracious, patient, and forgiving faithfulness to those in the world that have rebelled against him time and time again. So Paul here lays this foundation of reminding us of God's expectation for marriage of one man and one woman until death do you part. But now look with me in verse 12. He says, but I, not the Lord, say to the rest. This was I was referencing earlier and I said it, I said it wrong. But, but here's where people may think that, that Paul's saying, well, I'm saying this. Jesus didn't say it, but I'm saying it. And then in a sense, it's coming with less authority. But I don't think that that's the case. And he says here, not I, but I say to the rest. He's, he's shifting here to a different situation of a married couple between two believers to now we're going to walk into where one partner is a Christian and the other is not. Now hear me clearly. This is not about a Christian who's married a non-Christian. I think scripture is very clear, the call for believers not to be unequally yoked. And for me, I would even say, I wouldn't understand why if you would say that Jesus is the most important thing in your life, is the lens by which you view everything in your life, why would you choose to spend the rest of your life with the person that will know you closest, most intimately, that you will spend more time with than anyone else, for that to be a person that doesn't share the core conviction and worship the same God you do? It makes no sense to me. So this is, this is not what that's addressing. This is not giving a, 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 a reason for that, an excuse for that. This is the marriage of two people that were unbelievers. As I said, it's at which one point, one of them becomes a Christian. And so Paul now is going to give what I think he knows is with the authority of an apostle. In fact, in verse 40, he's going to say, and I believe that I have the Spirit of God with me. He understands what he's saying is inspired. It is coming from the Lord. And simply put, in verse 12 through verse 14, here's what he's saying. If you become a believer in Christ and your unbelieving spouse is willing to continue to live with you, don't divorce him. Don't divorce him. If your unbelieving spouse is willing to continue to live with you, don't divorce him. It goes back to that word again, remain. Stay as you are. For time's sake, we're not going to even get into it. But in verse 17 through 24, some of you are like, whew, I thought we still had to cover that. No, we don't. Verse, verse 17 through 24. What we see is that 
that he's going to say, he's going to use this word remain, and it's this understanding of to remain in the situation what God called you. In fact, if you want to, you can circle in that section. He's going to use the word called eight times. There's eight different times that he's going to use that word over and over again. It's the understanding of, listen, if you were in a marriage and you were both unbelievers and God called you to himself in that marriage, then remain as you are. Why? Why would he do that? Well, that's where he tells us here. He says here, this is a confusing verse for some people. I even had someone ask me a question about it last week. Verse 14, Paul says, For the unbelieving husband is made holy by the wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy by the husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. Is Paul saying here that the, the believing spouse should stay because... The unbelieving spouse and the kids, they just get to ride the coattails of the believing spouse right into glory. No. You look at the full context of Scripture and you can see there is only one way to heaven and is under one name and is under the name of Christ. And it's a call for personal responsibility to respond to him. What Paul is saying here, he's talking about gospel influence. He's saying that that if you become a believer and you stay in this marriage, there is now gospel influence in that home in which there never was. That means your spouse should love you more because you are being more like Jesus. You're becoming more like Jesus. It means that now where you used to be driven by your selfishness, now you're driven by considering the needs of others before your very own. It means that you're understanding what it means to love your spouse because you understand that in loving your spouse means reflecting the love that Jesus has for the church and how he gave himself for the church. And so I want to serve my spouse more than I've ever served him before. It means that your kids begin to see Jesus in the home like they've never seen. Like, I don't know what happened to mom, but she came and sat down in my room and she said, I was wrong and I'm sorry. That's never happened. What happened? Well, Jesus got a hold of her heart, and she understood how much she had been forgiven by God, and it changed her. And now she's wanting to, to step into who God's called her to be, and there's a humility and a willingness to, to say, I'm sorry, and to seek, to seek forgiveness. Verse 16, he says, why, for all you know, you might save your husband. Husband, for all you know, you might save your wife. He's saying, stay in the marriage if the partner will agree to it. The unbelieving partner will, so that you can be a gospel influence in that home. But what if the partner is not willing? What if the un unbelieving spouse isn't willing to stay in the marriage? He addresses that in verse 15. Look with me. But if the unbeliever leaves, let him leave. A brother or sister is not bound in such cases. God has called you to live in peace. What we find here in verse 15 is what is referred to as the Pauline privilege. So Paul says if the unbeliever leaves, this is the same verbiage talking about divorce, he says to let him. What we find here is a biblical allowance for divorce in which the innocent party, that's an important term, the innocent party, that would be the believer, is not guilty of disobeying God's command and expectation of marriage remaining until death. So we see in verse 10 and 11, right, he has set this high standard for marriage, husband and wife, for life, until death. And now he's come and said, but listen, if you're in this marriage as a believer and your unbelieving spouse leaves, there is an allowance that takes place. 
The only other allowance that we find in Scripture, we find in Matthew chapter 5 and in Matthew chapter 19, in which Jesus is questioned about marriage and divorce. And Jesus says, except in the case of sexual immorality, that there is an expectation that marriage remain until death. So we see this, this biblical allowance of sexual immorality in which the marriage covenant is broken. It gives the option for divorce. Now hear me, it doesn't command divorce. Some of the strongest, healthiest marriages that are in this First West family are marriages that at some point in the, over the years of being married that one spouse had an affair. And the incredible courage and forgiveness and grace of that innocent spouse was willing to fight for that marriage and to pray and to ask for God's strength. And, it is, and, and these marriages have reconciled to a place that are stronger than they ever were. So, so hear me, sexual immorality is not a command to divorce, but there is an allowance for divorce. And then he uses this interesting phrase, a brother or sister, this is verse 15, a brother or sister is not bound in such cases. There's a disagreement about this phrase, but I think he's speaking to remarriage here. I believe, that, uh, I believe in the case where there is a biblical allowance for divorce, either through abandonment or through sexual immorality, that there is a biblical allowance for remarriage. Meaning that if you're that innocent party, you were the one who was abandoned, or your spouse was the one who committed adultery, that you can pursue remarriage knowing that you're walking in step with God's plan. Maybe you're here today and you're saying, but Michael, what about, what about a situation with abuse? Are you, are you saying that a person, if they're walking in abuse, that they, they, need to, they need to remain in the situation in which they are? And I would say absolutely not. I would just start at this place. First of all, you need to get out of that situation right away. You need to be safe. You, you need to let people that you trust, including a pastor, know about your situation and to, and to walk through that situation. Please hear me this morning, uh, <clears throat> or do not hear this morning, that you must remain in a situation where abuse is taking place. You need to get help and to separate yourself. Am I clear on that? You got it on that? I want to give a high view of marriage because Scripture gives a high view of marriage. But on that specific issue, I want to be clear. We need to get you out. We need to get you safe. And you need to walk with community of biblical, biblical believers that can walk you through this situation. Hear me today. I understand the heaviness of this. I mean, I get it. I mean, some of you are thinking, like, Michael, it just seems different today. It does seem different today. Because the heaviness, the, the real-life relationships that we face and face and, and how... The challenge of taking, even as believers, we're believers, but we're still sinners. And you take two sinners and you put them under one home and you expect them to live life together. There's challenges that come along the way. I mean, on Tuesday, Abby and I will celebrate our 19th anniversary. And even last week, there were some things that, I mean, minor, such minor, minor things. If I told you, you would laugh at me. But they brought tension, disagreement. And we love each other. We're committed to each other. We're as happy as we've ever been, but it's just hard, right? It's hard. But God's word has to be the authority in our life. And we have to trust his word and we have to reflect his character and we have to trust him. Listen, it's important for us when we come across challenging moments like this, and especially when we walk through challenging situations in our life, it's important for us to think deeply about what God desires. 
It's important for us to live in a way that brings honor to God and to know that it's always worth it when we trust God's plan. We need to think deeply about God's word and what it says and what it means and what it means for us. I'll even tell you on on this issue that we're looking at here in Matthew chapter 7 that that we have a team of of our deacons, a small group of uh, of our deacons that I put together as a team that has been studying this issue for five years on how this issue relates to deacon qualifications. Because Paul gives a command in 1 Timothy 3, the deacons are to be a one woman man. That's a challenging phrase that he uses there. What does that mean for the innocent party when, when the unbelieving spouse walks out on them and they have a biblical allowance so they no longer qualified? And so next month, our deacons are gonna vote on the proposed recommendation from this study team to shift our qualifications for deacon to align with a more biblical position on allowances for divorce and those that are innocent parties in the divorce. And hear me, that's not lowering the bar on marriage. I think you've heard today. God has a high view of marriage. And at the same time, it's not lowering a bar on deacon qualifications. God has laid those out very clear in 1 Timothy 3 for a pastor and for a deacon. By no means do we want to lower a bar that God has set. But there are some interpretive challenges there, and we want to be able to come to a place as our deacon body to say, hey, we want to stand where we stand on conviction, knowing that we've done the hard work on a difficult subject to say, this is where we stand in a church, and we do it with confidence because we believe this is what God's word says. But it's a challenge. So let me give you some takeaways today, and we'll be done. Several takeaways. Number one in here, if you're unmarried. If you're unmarried and you believe that God has gifted you to remain in the season that you're in, until glory comes, then go for it. But if you don't believe that you have the self-control to remain pure before God, then, then I think as Paul would say, then pursue marriage. At the same time, I would say, and I don't want to get too much into next week, but if you're here today and you're not married and you do want to pursue it, I hope today you have heard. Students, I want to, I want to invite you to listen really carefully to me right here. I want you to hear the high bar of marriage that God has set. I don't want you to miss that. I I don't want you to miss the understanding that when he says husband and wife until death do you part, that is the expectation. I had someone tell me one time, you know what's worse than being single and lonely? Being married and lonely. Some of you know what I'm talking about there. As you think, whether you're a student, whether you're a young adult, maybe you're 30 or 40s or 50s, you've never been married and you're, you're still desiring marriage at some point. Let me ask you. Would you be willing to marry that person if you knew they would never improve from the person they are right now? That needs to be your understanding and your mindset that, yes, this is a person that I will go for the next four, five, six decades with. This is the person that I'm going to spend my life with. If you're married, if you're married, I pray today that today has put some wind in your sails to keep fighting. To keep fighting for your marriage to be willing to come to things like marriage night or to get involved in a life group, to surround yourself with biblical community, to invite people into the struggles you're having, to pray with you, to walk with you, to serve you in the challenges that marriage bring. To understand that love is not just a feeling, but love is a choice. And maybe today renewing that choice to love your spouse the way that Christ loves the church. And finally, if you're here today and you're divorced, 
let me just say with full confidence and as clearly as I can, divorced individuals are not second-class citizens in the kingdom of God or this church. And I know that today has probably been really difficult. Today you have felt like in this big room that there has just been a spotlight that has been shining on you and you really would have liked, preferred just to get up and walk out, but your fear is what people would say if you did. But I want to remind you today, if that's you, that's been a part of your story, you're not one guilty sitting among the innocent. Scripture is very clear. There is no one that is righteous, not one. In fact, the Word of God says that we have all sinned. We have all strayed. We have all gone our own way. And listen to this. And the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. And my prayer today is that regardless of what happened last year, regardless of what happened 10 years ago or 15 years ago or 50 years ago, that you would walk in the forgiveness, the complete forgiveness that is found in the work of Christ. And that you would feel like that regardless of what your past is, you can be a part of a church, a body of brothers and sisters in Christ that don't come after you to condemn you of your, of your sin because they're very aware of their sin. And I hope today that you could walk out of here. Again, sure, we have things we wish we would have done different, but we can't change that. And today you would walk in that grace and in that peace and remind that in God's forgiveness, he separates it as far as the east is from the west. And you would choose at this moment, regardless of what the past looked like, I'm going to move forward trying to honor God the very best I know how. Maybe today you're, you're, you, you've remarried. You say, Michael, man, I, we got remarried and we, had, we didn't know this. We hadn't heard this. And man, we think we may have done something wrong. Do we need to get divorced? No, you don't need to get divorced. You need to you need to strive to have the godliest marriage you can have right now where you're at to the glory of God. Amen? I want to leave you with this quote. It's from Craig Keener in his book, And Marries Another Divorce and Remarriage. He says, Jesus' message to everyone is plain enough. To those contemplating divorce, don't. To those inclined to condemn without knowledge of the circumstances, don't. To those near a prospective Christian divorce, offer yourselves as humble agents of reconciliation and healing. To those who have repented and made restitution insofar as possible for a sinful choice, trust his forgiveness. To those upon whom the dissolution of marriage forced itself without invitation, be healed by God's grace and dare to stand in your freedom in Christ, which no one has the authority to take away from you. And whether his call after the divorce proves to be singleness or marriage, make your life a life of prayer that will minister to all believers with whom you have relationships, harboring no bitterness either against your former spouse or against a church whose fear of human pain often overshadows its willingness to heal it. I think every one of us today can find our place in that quote. And I pray that we would do it to the glory of God. Would you bow your heads with me today? I heard a pastor say one time, said, you know, if you looked at our lives and our rebellion over and over and over again from God, he would have more than enough grounds to divorce us. But yet he doesn't. In his grace and in his mercy and in his faithfulness, he continues to pursue us. And so today, in a unique message like this, 
my prayer for you today is that as you consider the high view of marriage that he gives, that covenant commitment, that God is not asking you to do anything in marriage that he has not already done towards his people. Over and over again in his word, his people fail. Over and over and again, his people abandon him. Over and over again, his people go and pursue these other gods. We see it in the book of Hosea. As he tells Hosea to go and to take a wife, Gomer, who will constantly leave Hosea for others. And he tells Hosea over and over again, go pursue your wife, go pursue your wife, go pursue your wife. And it is a picture for us of God's unrelenting pursuit for his people. So today, would you know that God loves you right where you're at? He offers forgiveness. And regardless of what your past has been, today's an opportunity to start a new future. Desiring to honor God in our real life relationships and trusting him every step of the way. Lord, today, we pray, God, that you would take the heaviness of this message, the heaviness from a theological standpoint and all that Paul's trying to deal with there, but also the heaviness of the relationships in our lives. For some of us that have walked through divorce, for some that are parents have experienced divorce, or some that our kids have walked through divorce. I pray, God, that today we have seen what is your ideal. And at the same time, we know that when we miss the mark on your ideal, there is grace and forgiveness to be found. And so help us as your people do all that we can to have marriages that bring honor to you, that reflect you, reflect the mystery of the gospel. And God, when things don't go well, may we be a church that is a place of patience, a listening ear, compassion, and forgiveness. And Father, may we never forget that you are always, always, always faithful to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, we hope, again, that you were uh, encouraged by what God had to say for you and for your life. I just want to extend an invitation for you today. Maybe today you realize that you need Jesus in your life. Maybe today you just need to take that next step in your spiritual walk, or maybe you've got a spiritual need. And I want you to know that we would love to come alongside you and serve you any way that we can. Feel free to reach out to us at firstwest.cc, or you can call the church, 318-322-5104. And we would love to help you in what God is doing in your life. Have a great day.